Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone out there. We are so excited to be back here with you with another episode of Holistic Leadership, the Future of Work and Education in Healthcare. And today we are uh, really blessed uh, to be joined, not just by uh, a leader in this space, but also someone uh, as a physician, um, but also a teacher and, and a leader that has really focused on well-being and resiliency. And so Travis and I are so happy to have Dr. Jonathan Fisher here. Uh, Dr. Fisher serves as a cardiologist, a certified mindfulness teacher, and well-being and resiliency leader at Novant Health, uh, where he has the privilege of supporting a team of 38,000 healthcare professionals and caregivers each and every day. He's also the founder of the MindHeartNow LLC, where he delivers keynotes and workshops on mindfulness, stress mastery, total well-being, and heart-centered leadership for teams and organizations globally including IBM, uh, Bank of America, IE Business School in Madrid, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and many others. Uh, what I want to also share is that uh, Dr. Fisher uh, also lives in Charlotte with his wife, Julie. Uh, they have three teenage children and two doodle dogs, which I give credit because I've got a mini golden doodle, so go, go doodles. Uh, and his dogs are named Cosmo and Hugo. There's so much more uh, about Dr. Fisher, one of the things I should reference too is that he co-founded, and this is how I first learned of his work, the Ending Clinician Burnout Global uh, Community. And as part of that, organized the world's first and largest global summit this, uh, dedicated to ending clinician burnout with over a thousand participants from 43 countries. And so uh, really uh, so excited to have you, Dr. Fisher, with us. And uh, I, I feel like we're with an icon uh, in the work of, of uh, ending burnout uh, and putting resiliency, particularly in healthcare. And so thank you for being here. Oh, it's uh, such a pleasure. Thank you for the warm introduction, Jeffrey and Travis. I love the work that you're doing. And it, for me, it's simply a privilege to be in conversation with you. Thank you. I will jump in really quick that when, when Jeffrey, when you said go doodles, that was almost, <laughs> almost, it sounded like maybe the mascot of some of, of a liberal arts college somewhere uh, down the road. So first thing that caught my mind, go doodles. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, I don't know what you're doing in Colorado these days, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into uh, we'll get into the subject here. Um, so, you know, Dr. Fisher, you as as referenced in your bio, were one of the early leaders in the movement in healthcare uh, to really bring on uh, an increased focus on well-being and resiliency. In many ways, you did this well before the pandemic. Uh, now, systems are all focusing, quote unquote, focusing uh, on this as a priority. Um, but I want to ask you, what first made you decide to do this? And and how did you approach it initially? Mm. It was by necessity, Jeffrey. Uh, I, I had no such education and well-being. It didn't seem like anyone was concerned with my well-being. Uh, as I went through my medical training, through my residency training, through my fellowship training, maybe there was a lecture in medical school where somebody said, people first care how much you care before they, how much you know, something like that, a cliche. Um, but there was no discussion of who's going to take care of the doctor and the nurse as they are pouring themselves out into other people. So it was by necessity. I had my own struggles and battles with anxiety, uh, which turned into pretty bad depression and isolation, even as I was pretending to have all of my, you know, what together uh, on the hospital rounds. And so I was seeking mental health. I was seeking therapy at Harvard, hiding myself so that no colleagues or patients would see me going into the psychiatrist's office. It was quite embarrassing and shameful, actually. And it shouldn't have been. 
It was embarrassing because nobody talked about this stuff. So that began my journey over a decade ago of saying, we're missing something here in our education. And there don't seem to be leaders talking about how important it is that we are whole within ourselves and that we support each other. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I, I, my background is in the military and it's such a stigma to ask for help in the military. And, and, and it's, 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 I don't know if it's good to hear, but it's, 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 it's amazing that the, the, People like you are able to go against the grain a little bit and understand that it's okay when you feel that pressure, when you feel, when you feel like you, like you need help, you need some, you need something to, to, to boost you up that you were willing and able to jump into some of that mental health and self-care. So I kind of a following question to you. For me, it was super scary to take that first step into admitting that I needed some help. How was that for you? It was uh, it was terrifying, Travis. I'm laughing because there was a story that my first therapist uh, told me, and it came like a revelation because he could see I was terrified. I didn't even want to sit down. I was like, get me out of here. Like, you know, there's something wrong with me. In my family, it was not okay to have, you know, emotional trouble, mental trouble. Uh, it was all brushed sort of aside. And he told me the story. He said, Jonathan, I could see you're really worried that there's something horrible that we're going to discover here. There's something deeply wrong with you, which is honestly what I thought. I thought I was a fake and a phony, and I, I faked my way somehow getting into good schools and all that, really like an imposter, and I was so mean to myself. He, he said, it, it may feel like you're sitting on a cardboard box, and you hear this roar of this vicious lion inside the box, and you're terrified that if you look inside the box, it's going to attack you. Something terrible is going to come up. And he said, is it possible that it's not a lion inside the box, something terrible? Is it possible it's just a, a little cub, a little teddy bear, something that it just once you start to look at it and you start to really get curious, you'll, you'll feel a lot less pressure that you're hiding something. And that's actually, Travis, that was such a helpful little anecdote for me because it was true. Once I realized the power of sharing my story, the parts that I was ashamed of, the parts that I thought I was the only one who was acting like a jerk with, with my family, acting like a jerk with my kids, not able to control my anger. I'm supposedly a heart doctor. I'm really kind in front of other people putting on this mask. But I would go home and I would, you know, I can't, I don't want to curse on a podcast, but I was a you know what. And so... It really, it really started me a path of feeling more liberated in a way to, to be more kind to myself, realize that I wasn't the only one who was hiding a lot of stuff underneath the surface. And that as I got this stuff up and out with people who really loved me and cared for me, I became a much better doctor, a better friend, a better husband. And then I wasn't a leader at the time or so I, did, so I thought people started to ask me to take on leadership roles after I got into some of my darker stuff. Wow. You know, there's a lot really that's interesting about that too. And, and there's also some things that um, I've always thought in healthcare where we've also failed, right? You know, my hospital days, one of the best projects I ever had the privilege to work on was integrating behavioral health and primary care. Uh, because, you know, to your, exact, to your exact example, no one should have to face that stigma. Uh, yet in our society, we still have that stigma. Uh, and if you have it in a primary care setting, good chances you're going to go into that primary care setting uh, over going into a, you know, into a behavioral health setting just because of where they are. Access to care generally is a little bit better, uh, probably in a space that you feel more comfortable. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that, you know, you can unpack into that. But 
I'm curious too, Jonathan, when you look at your field, um, you know, some have described medical school as, uh, now it's evolving, obviously, but I know you also spent a lot of time with, with new physicians and new providers uh, at Novant Health and work with them on, you know, getting more comfortable, uh, being more open about who they are, their feelings, their mindfulness, et cetera. Uh, do you feel that in medical school, we're doing enough of that today or, or do we still have work to do? There has been a wonderful shift over the last, I would say, 10 years in the medical school curricula. And unfortunately, Jeffrey, this is driven by suicide uh, among medical students and residents who feel like they've got no recourse, nobody cares, and they're stuck in a help hopeless system. So it's now part of more and more healthcare uh, curricula, even in University of Massachusetts. They have a Department of Mindfulness, which started about five years ago, which is you know, mindfulness is great as a tool. It's really a tool for self-awareness, self-regulation, and for being kinder to ourselves in a way. Uh, what we're trying to do at Novant is look not just at how can we identify doctors who are burned out or nurses who are burned out. It's a little bit too late at that point. Not too late. Obviously, we'll help. How can we be more proactive? And the only way to do that is to start before people join the system, and which means go back to day one of medical school and say, we are going to plant a flag in the ground. We're not going to spend three months studying only neuroanatomy. We want to ask about your emotional health, what's going on at home, what's happening spiritually. So one of the privileges that I have at Novant, and this is because of the work done by our chief well-being officer, his name is Dr. Tom Jenicky. He, he is the actual pioneer going back over a decade in healthcare. One of the very first chief well-being officers in healthcare in America he decided that coaching was a path towards uh, well-being. And he's taken now thousands of doctors and nurses and C-suite executives through a three-day intensive coaching program. Now we have the sponsorship and the commitment of our organization to take our medical residents through that. So next month, Tom and I are going to take our incoming medical residents for three days off-site. And we're not going to talk a lick about medicine. It's going to be all about them. That, that's amazing. Uh, I wish we could get that three day. Can we, are you sure we can't come? <laughs> so, <laughs> you talk about mindfulness and coaching. And when you, when you, when you bring the, uh, these folks on this, on this three day retreat, uh, a lot of, a lot of, some of the listeners, mindfulness is a relatively new concept. It's not, it's, it's, it's a relatively new, new term. It's not a new concept, but it's a relatively new term. How do you coach someone when they're first starting to get their breathing down when they're first really starting to, to incorporate mindfulness into their lives. How do you get someone started down that road? First off is it's a, I take a marketing approach, which is nobody likes to buy something that they weren't looking for. And uh, nobody likes some, to have something forced down their throats. Like, here's this new thing. You should try it. And in fact, a lot of healthcare systems were making a mistake a few years ago, and they were requiring that new doctors and older doctors would come to these sessions. And you know, you have doctors who are struggling with burnout. The last thing they need is another tool, another strategy. So, Travis, it's a great question. I think if we go in with a sensitivity to that, and we always start, just like as, as physicians, we start with where is the pain? And I can always, no matter who the partner is, always find some area of pain or discomfort. It may be around their marriage. It may be around the fact that they've got a moral injury, that they, they don't have enough of the resources they need to do their work. And this is where mindfulness comes in. So much of the suffering that at least I had for a decade in healthcare had very little to do with 
my workload or the EMR. Now, those were horrible, by the way. I double and triple booking for a while and 14 clicks to just sign off on an EKG. But I wonder if you can recognize this. A lot of the stress that I experienced in my life was happening in my own head. It was just the repetitive thoughts. It was the predicting negative outcomes. It was analyzing current situations and finding so many things to worry about, half of which never even happened. And also, I had this running narrative about, well, what's Travis thinking now? What's Jeffrey thinking now? Creating lots of drama. So what mindfulness does at its core, it slows us down. It helps us become aware of the thoughts that are occurring in our own mind. And really importantly, it helps us become aware of the sensations and feelings that are going to become powerful emotions in our body. And we can cut them off at the past if we recognize them early enough so that no longer do we become enraged when we can just express our anger early on. So it's, it's been a powerful tool for emotion regulation in the people that I coach. And it's not just mindfulness, it's also compassion bringing a deep sense of kindness towards, towards ourselves when we may go 20 years in our career and all we've ever done, and I know this is a military approach too, is it can be very harsh, you know, militaristic. You know, give yourself marching orders with very little hugs and warmth that we all we need. I, I, I gave plenty of hugs and warmth, but no, it had to be after the Marine Corps. Um, but I can absolutely, like what you were saying about just about, about, about having that expectation and overanalyzing things. And we tend to, I tend to get into my own head a lot and the, and, and I analyze an, an, an outcome that isn't even close to what the actual reality of that outcome would be. So when I start to get into my own head and stress myself out, it's, it's using those like mindfulness techniques, those coaching techniques and those things that you, that you, that you are bringing to people that has been amazingly helpful to me because I take my own self out of my, I take myself out of my own head and I'm able to think and I'm able to regulate and I'm able to like bring my, bring, come back down to reality. I'm like, okay, how am I, how do, how do I feel about this? So yeah, that, those are, that's, that's amazing. Awesome. Dr. Fisher, I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about is, uh, you recently wrote a book uh, that's going to be released soon uh, titled Just One Heart, A Cardiologist's Guide to Healing, Health, and Happiness. Um, and, and, you know, you don't know this, but one of the reasons I'm excited uh, is uh, I always tell people that I had a cardiologist that saved my life, uh, you know, took them many years, four different healthcare systems, uh, but saved my life in, in diagnosing sinus bradycardia that could have gone uh, very, very south. Uh, as it had for many other patients. Uh, but fortunately for me, they determined it, figured it out. And, uh, and on one morning, you know, had the device in uh, that, that, you know, picked up that I had a, a four second pause and, and a heart rate of 32, uh, which, you know, I didn't think was a big deal, obviously. Uh, but, but they did, and they moved uh, very effectively and very quickly uh, to take care of what needed to happen. But um, putting that aside, uh, the work, obviously, that cardiologists do uh, in this country and in this world is, is profound, but you, you took it a step further. And I'm curious, uh, as both a physician, but also someone that cares a lot about, uh, healing health and happiness, what inspired you to write the book? Uh, and what can we expect from it? Well, first, Jeffrey, I'm really heartened that you got the care that you needed and you had some astute team members there who picked up on things. So I'm happy to hear that. What started it for me was, I found a huge gap in my medical education after about 10 years of medical practice and cardiology practice. I, 
if you came to see me in my clinic or an office, or even if I saw you in the hospital 10 years ago, you would have gotten a pretty standard run through the checklist. Are you having chest pain? Are you having trouble breathing? Are you having palpitations? And then I would have given you kind of a standard response. Well, first we talk about you know, uh, medications, and then maybe we'll do some fancy tests on you. And then a million dollars later, you may or may not feel any better. <laughs> and one after another, after another, we would send patients through bypass surgery with blocked arteries. And the surgeons would say, you're cured. We fixed it. And then they'd come back to me and they'd say, I'm still having chest pain, doc. What's going on? And so in a way, it wasn't just a, a literal bypass of the blockage. It was a it was a bypass of the whole root cause of many of the problems that are causing our heart disease. If you look back, it's only two years that the American Heart Association wrote a paper on the importance of emotional health and emotional well-being in our heart health. But this is something that goes back 3,000 years. I mean, the ancient Egyptians knew that the heart was the seat of emotions. Every, every spiritual and religious tradition talks about the heart as carrying our emotions. But since the Enlightenment, we in the West thought that that's just BS. It doesn't make any sense. You know, emotions are here. The physical heart is over here. But I can tell you, and any cardiologist will tell you, that it's not a month that goes by that we don't see someone with a, what's called a broken heart. Literally, a broken heart syndrome is when somebody experiences a stress, which could be the death of a wife or a spouse or even a dog. And the heart itself starts acting like a heart attack, and it could become weak and damaged. And so I started seeing cases like that and patients who were having blockages that weren't being addressed at the root cause. And I said, maybe I can use some of the skills that I had had to learn myself to get through my own depression and extend those to my patients. And it turns out, thanks to some of the great work by Dean Ornish from the 70s and 80s, he's a real pioneer in the field, you can reverse some forms of heart disease, even the most common form, which is a blockage, reverse it to some degree by paying attention not to the physical heart, but to the emotional heart, the social heart. And our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy just put out a basically an APB two weeks ago on the impact of loneliness as a public health crisis. Loneliness is like smoking cigarettes or having diabetes. And then lastly, our spiritual heart. So you can't come and see me in my clinic now without me asking you questions about what is your deep sense of purpose and meaning in your life? Who are you concerned about beyond yourself? Who is concerned about you? What communities of belonging are you part of? And people may laugh at me and say, you're wasting time to get to the point. For me, that is the point. And that's the driver of a lot of heart disease. Yeah, my goodness. You talk about like when we talk about the heart and its importance in like our the first time that I go, first thing I went, I had a, some, some medical things. And like the first question they asked me was like, oh, how's your stress level? And I'm like, well, it's been it's been lower. <laughs> so and and they they start talking about the chain reaction between the stress level and and emotional mm -hmm. uh emotional impacts on how on our health and it's just it's amazing to me how connected everything is from posture to pain to to emotional uh regulation to 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 all of that and you hit on loneliness and i i i wrote a I, jeffrey said well i'm going to talk about it so i wrote a book about hybrid work and remote work um and a big part of that is loneliness. People have been thrown into this work culture that is isolating. Uh, people, they sit behind their desks and they don't, they're not getting up. They're not just not getting up and isolating themselves. They're not getting up to go exercise. They're not getting up to walk. And so it's, it's created this 
kind of a new and, and and I know that hybrid and remote work have been around for a very long time. But I think that what's what's what a good thing is that a lot of attention is being drawn to the mental health, physical health and physical well-being of these cultures. Um, just wondering what your take is on these these new remote and uh, not new, but these the, the remote and hybrid work cultures and how that's impacting people's emotional and physical health. Travis, you hit it on the head right there. It's having a massive impact. Uh, human beings were not meant to be alone. You know, as John Den wrote, John wrote, no man is an island. So we, we are taught in the West, particularly men, it's part of the male culture, you know, from when we're little boys, like suck it up, buttercup, do it yourself. Now, girls, and I, my daughter's similar too. It's a lot more about socialization into the group and sharing your emotions and helping each other. And so there is, I would say, um, a confluence of forces in the West in particular, uh, in our male culture in particular, that force us into this sense of rugged individualism. It's this American ideal. So going back long before COVID, long before even computers, we, many of us, suffer and struggle in our lives because we believe we have to go it alone. And in order to be successful in business in America, let's say, you get to the top and you look around, nobody wants to talk to you. So there's an epidemic of loneliness there. So all of that now funnels into COVID and the pandemic. I've seen rising rates of blood pressure, uh, unhealthy behaviors, alcoholism, uh, you name it, chest pain, all of these things. And it was just beneath the surface there. Thankfully, we're all paying more attention to the epidemic of loneliness and looking for ways to remedy it. Yeah, that's it's so true. It's just so easy to isolate yourself now. It's because if the, what the pandemic did is just made it very, very easy to isolate and become lonely. And it takes a, a we talk a lot about leadership on this podcast and it takes a, and leaders have to really take a new stance on the way that they treat their people and they talk to their people just like you were talking about. We need to figure out the whole person. We need to learn the whole person. It's not just a, for me, it's not just about tech or it's not just about cybersecurity, but it's about figuring out the whole person and how to lead the whole person. Well, what do they need paying attention? So no, I love Yeah. Thank you for your insight. And that's, that's amazing. I also, you know, I, I'm, I'm, as you said that I was reflecting, I think just as you're approaching patients, leaders should be approaching employees with exactly what you said. Right. I mean, uh, you know, how many times, you know, I was on a call earlier today with my boss and he's a phenomenal leader. Um, and, you know, he can read the room in a virtual call just as well as if he's in person. Mm. And, uh, and, and immediately we'll just come out and ask everyone how they're doing. Mm. Um, but a lot of leaders don't, don't even take that extra step. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we've all been in those environments, right? Where, like, for example, people that have worked with me or know me know just by my face how I am. And Travis is like, Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's you, true. You know, just by my face, they will know. And I had a boss uh, once who would say to me literally like, can you fake it? Cause like the vice president of human resources in here right now, and your face is not what I want it to be. And I would literally say, I'm oh, not really, yeah, I can't really do that. And he'd go, well, we're going to work on that. But, but you know, he would be able to read that room and he would know, and he would always say, Hey, you know what? I know now is not the time to have that conversation. Let's have it tomorrow. Let me know if you're ready to have it tomorrow. And so I think it, it's, it's really a powerful statement to your point that um, from a leadership perspective, we're not doing a great job of understanding 
uh, I would I would challenge all leaders out there, you know, that are listening to this. Do you know if your employees are lonely? Because good chance to to the Surgeon General's call that there's a lot of people who are actually lonely. Um, and so, you know, your your point is such an important point because again, if they've lost somebody, that broken heart syndrome is only going to grow further if they're lonely. And so, we have a responsibility to check in on people. Yeah, Jeffrey, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, Jeffrey Pfeffer out in California wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck. And he describes over the last 50 years how organizations in America, whether it's because of a boss uh, or a leader who just doesn't have that sensitivity, because of the way we do work, because of the, the bottom line that doesn't include human emotion and well-being, at least not until the last few years. And I'm hoping because of the leadership that you're showing that we're going to start including that in the bottom line. The impact of the employee well-being on their physical health, on lost work days, lost productivity, medical costs is staggering. We're talking hundreds of millions, if not even more. And a leader coming into business nowadays who isn't committed to taking on the extra responsibility, the core responsibility of not just listening, but also learning how to help people heal. And I'm not saying doc, you know, leaders have to become doctors or psychologists or psychiatrists, but I do think that this next generation of leaders have to have those core competencies of, and it's not easy, Jeffrey, what you described to be able to read the room. What does that require? It requires what Travis was saying. You have to get out of your own head first. And a lot of leaders got where they are because they're stuck in their own head and they're so focused and driven. Part of being a good leader is knowing when to open the focus and to open the awareness and go outside of yourself in order to sense the emotional and mental state of the people that you're supposedly leading. I love what you said. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of our previous guests, uh, I'm not sure if you had the chance to listen to it, but Dr. Steve Tang, uh, you know, former president and CEO of Orishore, uh, just finished his book. Uh, so, you know, Dr. Tang, when he hears this, will be proud. Uh, but but uh, he's I a good friend. He's a good friend of mine. He's awesome. Look at that. See? Yeah. You know, like-minded He's a good people. man. Yeah. Dr. Tang talks a lot in his book, and see, Dr. Fisher now needs to read it. Um, Dr. Tang talks a lot in his book about, about a lot of elements around this. And, and one of the things that I was inspired by having read it is, is actually the notes that he received back from his employees mm -hmm. when he would send his weekly notes out during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as I read that, I was thinking, well, I wish his board members would have read what those employees wrote, but, but that's a different circumstance. Um, oh, he'd see, he has it. He's he got has it. it. He's got it. But, but it, it inspired me uh, because, you know, that's a different thing. And I'll get on my soapbox at some point about boards uh, and governance, uh, which is another opportunity when it comes to these issues. But, but we'll save that because I'll get myself into some trouble. But the reality of it is, is, um, Oftentimes, I do feel that we do have some amazing leaders, to your point, that could be at the top. But if they have boards uh, in the governance level, trustees or directors, who don't allow them to be who they are or who don't want them to be as what they would describe, you know, a, a little too uh, loving or a little too, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, they, they take a hard-nosed approach. And I'll tell you, I worked for a CEO who always said to me, best CEO I ever worked for. She said to me, the board can tell me what they want, but they're not going to change who I am. And she said, I'm going to still be the person I am 
And if they don't want that, they have the right to choose someone else. But guess what? I'll walk out of this hospital and still be the same person I am. And when I walk in the community, people will look at me and say, wow, I, I miss you. And I wish they had you back. And that was the experience we had. Uh, and so it's, it's just interesting from that, from that perspective. Jeffrey, um, oh, I was going to ask you, in those situations, do you get a sense that people view it as an either or proposition? You're either kind and compassionate or you're hard nosed and financially savvy because I get that idea. But there's a wealth of data now, and there's books like Compassionomics written by the chief medical officer and president and CEO of Cooper University, which shows that you can do both. In fact, the best leaders are those that lead from empathy and compassion. Their bottom line is protected, not just for this week, but for years to come. And the stock price only goes up when leaders show those skills. What's your experience with that? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think even if you look at Dr. Steve Tang, I think he proved that out, right? I mean, you look at you know, can Dr. Tang be difficult? I'm sure and tough. Oh, I'm, I'm certain he can be. But he has a heart of gold and of service. And the CEO I was describing, which was my first CEO, tough as nails when it came to accountability. You knew if you were going to her office and you had a strategic initiative that you were responsible for, if you were not moving towards, you know, towards what was expected, you knew that conversation was not going to be one that necessarily would be desired. But would it be delivered in still a loving manner? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. There was a time when I said to her, and I smiled because I'll never forget this. I said to her, I'm not doing that. And she looked at me behind a desk and got up four foot 10. And she said, oh, you're not. She said, you are doing it. And not only will you do it, but you will excel at it. And when you do it, because you just said you're not going to do it, you're going to write a summary of what you learned from it. And I expect (laughs) to see it. And I thought, oh, here we go. And I learned to never, ever approach her in that manner. And so after that, I would come up and the executive assistant heard everything and she would just smile and she'd go, you know, here we go. And I would walk (laughs) in and say, guess what? Here's what I have. And she'd go, thank you. You learned, didn't you? And so like, you know, and I I loved it because to Mm. me it was a check. It wasn't mean, it wasn't rude, but it was accountable. And that's Mm. what I think is the difference. But Travis, what do you think? Yeah, I got to I got to chime in on this one because I talk a lot. I love I mean, if you look at 90% of my LinkedIn posts, it's all about a foundation being leading from a foundation of kindness, but still holding power and influence. We talk about as, as leaders, we have we have innate power and influence. That's just by the, kind of what comes with the job. And if we are able to use that power and influence with a foundation of kindness, that is the best kind of leadership. You can get, you can, you scale teams, you build culture. I mean, the, the old adage culture eats strategy for breakfast is absolutely true. But if you build a culture that's based on trust and based on, on kindness and growth and, and understanding and empathy and kindness and equity, it's, there are all those things that, that you can build a just high powered, high moving, successful team in any industry, whether it's healthcare, whether it's business military, it's a little bit harder. When I was in the military, you did not lead with kindness. That was not, that wasn't necessarily what you led with until I had a leader in Afghanistan that truly knew who I was. He knew about my family and there was 1200 of us in the, in our, in our battalion. There was a lot of Marines there and he would come up to me and he'd ask how I was. And so just feeling that. And when you're in, and this is kind of the concept that I want to get across is like, in extremely high stress environments, when life and death death is on the line, when a leader can come up and show kindness and still exude that power and influence and the scale is is balanced, 
it it makes people feel like they're taken care of. It makes them feel worthy. It makes them feel seen, heard. It just it it it, it pulls out the truly pulls out the best in people. So I am a big big proponent on this. That kindness as a foundation of of leadership is is the, how we should move forward, and it's the best way to move forward. I love that. I love it. <laughs> I will say too, it's okay to hug. You know, my former mm-hmm. CEO. Every time I came to her office, she would put her hands out and say, give me a hug. (laughs) And I know some people would say, oh, how could a CEO do that? But that was the relationship that we had. She wouldn't have done that without asking, uh, you know, first. Uh, But I've had, you know, it's the same thing. Some leaders, you know, have other ways of how they acknowledge people. But it's okay for that in leadership. Um, You know, I think think for some reason we've created this very corporate culture. And I, I see it way too often in healthcare. Uh, you know, come on, wake up. We're people. People like to be hugged. People like to be acknowledged. People like to be appreciated to, to Travis's point. They want to have that sense of belonging. And so I think um, it's an important element. Now, I know in your book, uh, you, uh, at least what I've seen in the intro, I should say, because I haven't gotten the book yet. But uh, in the intro, you talk about a mind-heart connection, uh, which very much speaks to, to a lot of this too. I'm curious from your vantage point as both a physician, but also as a leader, if you can speak to why and how you feel that's so important. And how have you really used a mind-heart connection uh, to save lives, improve lives uh, on the physician clinical side, but then also change lives, uh, both clinically, but also, you know, through your leadership work? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I'll take it kind of on two sides. There's the clinical side and then there's the leadership side recognizing that there is no difference. You made this point a few minutes ago, Jeffrey, and you said that the leaders nowadays can't just focus on logistics. We have to think about the well-being. And actually, I believe leaders are healers in a way. Leaders are heart healers. And part of the whole message of my book is that you don't have to go and see a heart doctor to, to be a heart healer or to have some healing in your own heart. We all have the natural capacity to bring some sense of wholeness, fill in the gaps from our childhood, from our past, to bring ourselves the love and compassion that maybe we didn't get so that we can then spill over into the people that we're leading. So that's a core message of the book is that we as leaders can be healers of hearts and people will naturally come towards us instead of running away from the traditional model of command and control leadership, which is a bygone days. On the medical side, this is fascinating. I could geek out on this for hours. You know, the the pathways in the brain that connect intimately with the circuitry in the heart are are amazing. So we have neurochemistry. So we have nerves, the vagus nerve, sympathetic nervous system. We have hormones, dopamine, cortisol, adrenaline. And there's this constant second-by-second fluctuation that's happening right now inside of you based on the thoughts that you're having, based on the emotions that you're having. And those are having an impact on your heart rate, on your blood pressure, on the level of squeeze or vasoconstriction of your blood vessels, on the level of inflammation in your heart arteries and the rest of your body, and on your tendency to form blood clots. So saying, oh, I was just angry, I cut someone off in traffic, but no big deal, that that can cause a literal heart problem. And so this mind-heart connection is, is a real, I see it every day in my clinic. People come to me complaining about chest pain and palpitations and shortness of breath. Now, if it's caused by a real problem, a structural problem, we're going to find it. The majority of the time, I don't find any structural problem with the heart, which is why I spend time either talking about anxiety, 
teaching some mindfulness or coaching skills to all of my patients. We meditate together at the end of the visit. I don't get reimbursed for that. I probably should. And people come back to me and I, and I say, well, what else do you need today? And they say, I need to meditate with you, Dr. Fisher, because that connection between the mind and the heart is physical and real. Now, on the leadership side, I think a traditional uh, leadership model is very head-based. It's very much, uh, I'm going to uh, sketch out kind of a map of where we're headed. I'll give you the strategy. I'm going to show you all the obstacles we're going to overcome. It's very rational, and that's understandable. It, again, in the West, since the, the ancient Greeks, we tend to prize this beautiful brain up here, and we think that the heart is weak. We think that the heart's going to lead us in the wrong direction. It's going to lead us astray. Don't listen to your heart. You're going to be confused by your emotions. And I think that that's wrong. I think we do ourselves a lot of harm when we favor the thinking mind and we think that that's the end all and be all. And we tell the heart itself to stay at home. Don't bring it into work. And I'm not making this up. If you read Daniel Kahneman, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And the whole point of his book is that we think we're really smart. We think we've got all the great ideas and that we're correct. But if we slow down a little bit, a lot of the times our initial thoughts are wrong. And this is because we've got so much information to process. We have to take these what are called cognitive shortcuts. So this is just a, a call out to say, can we as leaders be a little more humble about what we think we know and how certain we are, number one? And number two, can we start checking in a little bit more with what's happening right here? You know, how does it feel to be around Travis as a leader? Am I Am I inspired by him? Do I want to hang out? Do I want to learn more? Or, or am I a little bit afraid? Am I going to keep that door closed? So if, if there's a problem, I'm going to keep it to myself and let it fester, let it spill over to my team members, and then create drama so that in a week, Travis is going to hear about it, but it's not going to be pretty. So if we could just recognize how we're showing up emotionally, let the brain do what it does. We're all very smart here in the room. It's not about who's the smartest. I think it's about who can be the most empathic, most compassionate, and take the, the broadest 360 view of the well-being of our workforce that's going to be successful in the future. You know, it's, uh, so it's, it's interesting uh, to hear a physician say that you meditate uh, with your patients. And um, I'm just amazed at that, you know, in, in many ways, one of which uh, that you've been able to create that structure where you have uh, the time to do that too, right? Because you know you're seeing patients uh, quite a bit, one after another, one after another, uh, one after another. Uh, I can certainly say, uh, while I've had great cardiac care, I've never had the patient offer uh, to meditate. Usually, they're kind of in and out. Um, and and I will say, you know, I'll say it publicly, and Travis, like, oh boy, I will say when they ask me how I'm doing, I never tell them the truth. Uh, <laughs> You know, either I always tell them, "Oh no, I'm not stressed," and I'm and fine. I'm fine. They're not reading the room, uh, mm. but but uh, yeah, exactly. I tell them I'm fine. Uh, mm. I will say, Travis will be coming to Charlotte. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna book him for he he he, could, he needs that um, uh, for, for can't his, wait uh, for his stress. Nope. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I do want to you know I do want to say because obviously uh, we could go on for much longer if we had the time that. Um, in closing, that there's a lot that people have to take away from this, uh, particularly when we talk about uh, not just healthcare, uh, but also leadership and really the workplace. And um, what I heard you say there was that irregardless of the environment you're in, whether you're a clinical uh, leader 
a clinical provider, a healer, uh, or a leader in whatever uh, position you're in, you have a responsibility to just take time for that person and help them navigate with what they're going through, whatever that may be. And so I also heard, you know, from you in that dialogue, how important it is to understand and connect with them to see how you can support them. And that's really, really uh, incredibly powerful. And so I want to thank you, Dr. Fisher, yeah. not only uh, for the time you spent with Travis and I, uh, uh, again, I'm here with two doctors, uh, but uh, he's the only you know, useful one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're no, no, take that back right there. That thought, Dr. Fisher, right. That thought was yeah. not a positive one. So I'm no. going to hold him accountable. I'll get it uh, out of it. I'll get it out of it. Chances to hold me accountable. But yeah. I think, um, and I really appreciated your description of that too, because it's so important. I know I, I just shared recently on LinkedIn too, that, uh, you know, there was a video about uh, the impact of, of how the, the brain connects with your thoughts. And I know that's something I got to do a better job too, because I, when I get uh, thoughts, you know, I don't, I don't think about the impact uh, to one's heart or the impact uh, to our health. And so it's important, but I want to thank you for that. And I also want to encourage all of our listeners to, to go out uh, and, and uh, get Dr. Fisher's book. Um, I know I have mine ordered uh, and uh, look forward to it. Uh, go out and get Just One Heart, A Cardiologist's Guide to Healing, Health, and Happiness. Because I think uh, what, what you heard Dr. Fisher share there is that when we look at issues of the heart, uh, and I tell people, I'm, this is personal to me too, having lost my father to sudden cardiac arrest, that um, there's a lot more involved with these things, as Dr. Fisher said. And uh, look, I, I will even travel to Charlotte. I, I need to make some, I need to ask Dr. Fisher where I need to get my care because uh, I need to make sure I get a physician like you uh, as part of cardiology. But, but in all seriousness, thank you for all that you do. And uh, I wanna encourage our listeners when this comes out, you definitely wanna listen to this. Uh, you definitely wanna engage with Dr. Fisher. Dr. Fisher, where can they find you uh, so that they can engage with you? Oh, Jeffrey and Travis, this is such a, a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I had no idea how much fun this conversation was going to be. You all are awesome. And uh, and thank you for recommending the book as well. Uh, I'm active on LinkedIn. So if you look up my name, you'll find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on any social media by the name Happy Heart MD. Happy Heart MD, one word. And if you want to find the book, it's justoneheartbook.com. Justoneheartbook.com. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to get my... Uh, my book. And just like Dr. Tang's, it goes right in front of the other books. Uh, I know what Travis is thinking. He's like, well, I hope you read mine, but, but uh, we'll get there. You know, I, I tend to, you know, something that deals with the heart, unless he tells me there's a chapter on the heart, it goes right to it. But it's all about uh, the heart. Yeah. The whole book is yeah. about the heart. Yeah, there is, yeah. there is one full chapter on sleep and nutrition and exercise. But the bulk of the book is about all the other aspects of the heart that we don't typically talk about in the office. I can't wait. Yeah, Dr. Fisher, I just want to thank you also. I think this is this has been this is refreshing. It's refreshing to see this. We we're starting to see this trend to that's changing the tide of mental health. It's changing the tide of how leadership is 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 acting and behaving, and it's just changing the mindset, which is really the ultimate goal of why 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 this podcast is in existence. We want to be able to think about leadership differently, and uh, so thank you for your perspective. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all, Travis. Thank you as well. And uh, we will see you all soon. Don't forget to make sure you check out the Holistic Leadership uh, podcast. Sign up to make sure uh, that you get uh, access to it every time 
We have some another amazing guests planned. Uh, you will also see we'll continue the thread of mental health, uh, particularly in leadership in some of the next ones. But we will also be getting into some higher education leaders in the near future uh, as well, talking about leadership. And so, Dr. Fisher, thanks again. Talk to you all soon. Travis, thank you as well.